Hello, listener. I am very excited to share that we have launched our brand new globalcaptivepodcast.com website. The site features our full back catalogue of episodes, biographies and pictures of every one of our 100 plus guests with direct links to the episodes they feature in and information and contact details for our 15 Friends of the Podcast for 2020. Please do also sign up to our weekly newsletter. Just visit globalcaptivepodcast.com. But now, back to the studio. Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 31 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q. I am your host, Richard Kutcher, and please remember that the easiest way to get the latest episodes downloaded straight to your device and access our extensive back catalogue of episodes is by subscribing or following on your podcast app of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts from. In this episode, we have a really varied lineup for you, uh, from Stockholm in Sweden to New Jersey and to our guest host in Idaho, I believe a GCP first. Our captive interview this week is with Frederick Finman, head of group risk management at global engineering giant Sandvik. While in the second half, I have a conversation with Mike Tannenbaum, a fellow podcaster and risk management recruitment specialist from Key Strategies LLC. But my guest co-host today and someone who is able to explain something quite unique about the US captive industry is one Van Carlson, CEO of Strategic Risk Alternatives in Boise, Idaho. Van, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Cheers, Van. Really, really, a few things I'm really excited to talk to you about. Van and I are going to talk about how Indian reservations are regulating captive insurers, the captive claims he's seen related to the pandemic, and use of the 831B tax election more generally. But first, Van, perhaps you could provide our listeners with a bit of background on strategic risk alternatives and its work with captives. Yeah. So, strategic risk alternatives is a 831B administrator. You know, we do have uh, a tax code over here for uh, deferment for employees called the 401k. What 401k does, it defers comp and income for employees. 831b tax code defers income to address unfunded liabilities and catastrophic type risks similar to the COVID-19. So we as administrators administrate the 831b no different than the 401k administrators do. I originally started my profession in property casualty insurance as an agent, uh, grew a pretty successful agency. And in 2008, we had the Great Recession. At that point in time, I saw a lot of small business owners to, to middle-sized business owners taking a lot of risks to do it, uh, get up every day and go to work and take a lot of risk that they didn't realize they were unfunded for. And um, traditional insurance does a great job, uh, we believe, in handling the tangible assets of businesses. It's when it comes to the intangible assets is when it becomes harder for businesses to quantify. A good example is business interruption under the COVID-19 again. It speak to a bigger example than that, unfortunately, uh, that a lot of small to middle market business owners are experiencing today. And that's really where we started to think, you know, um, we wanted to structure a program where it was affordable, small to middle market business owners could take advantage of the 831B. And uh, so we were sensitive of fees, price points, 
And then we have a unique domicile that really makes it affordable for a lot of business owners partake and still have a domestic, considered a domestic insurance company in the United States. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's that's one of the reasons why I was really keen to get you onto the, the podcast, fam, was a topic we've never touched upon uh, on the podcast in the past 15, 16 months. And one I never really wrote about either at Captive Review, uh, to my own shame, is, is the use of Indian reservations as captive domiciles in the United States. Now, listeners outside of the US will be probably quite aware of the many, many states, I think 35 to 40 US states now welcome captives, have captive legislation and promote themselves as captive domiciles. But Indian reservations are also home to captives as well. Um, can you perhaps explain for us, Van, how domiciling on an Indian reservation works? Does it work in exactly the same way as, as a regular state domicile would work and, and how captives are, are regulated there? Yeah. So Indian reservations, federally recognized Indian re- reservations are considered an internation state, a nation within a, within a nation. Um, so they're able to regulate themselves, pass their own laws, uh, obviously, they're guided by the federal government, not any state government. And as you know, in the United States, insurance is tr- traditionally held to be regulated by state levels. And so what uh, the Indian Reservation we work with is the Modoc Nation out of Oklahoma, and they formed their own Department of Insurance, Department of Finance, uh, adopted regulations, no similar to, very similar to the state of Utah's regulations, and regulated by a uh, Department of Insurance Commissioner, no different than a state. Obviously, it's revenue for the reservation land, no different than the state of Utah or to your point about, you know, I think there's 34 states now in the United States promoting you to own your insurance company in in the U.S. Um, They're more affordable in our opinion. Uh, We do pay in premium taxes to the reservation, to the Modoc tribe, and they uh, regulate pretty well. I mean, and, and they're fast to move on certain things that we're looking at, especially when it comes to risk profiles that we wanted to enhance. We want to change something. You know, we submit to the insurance commissioner for their approval. Um, no different than you would do in a, a domestic state. So so from our standpoint, efficient way of doing business and also uh, affordable for a lot of business owners to, to partake in. Um, as you know, the capitalization the regulations, and then, of course, the administrators that get involved, you know, these things can be pretty be heavy, and it kind of lends itself to, to bigger companies to, to be able to be in these types of programs. I never really wanted to have a program like that. I, I believe the 831B originally was set forth for small to middle market business owners. So you mentioned there that uh, captives domiciled on the reservation will still pay a, a premium tax or to the reservation. What other kind of tax considerations are in relation to, you know, is it still taxed like a US company? And what about kind of writing insurance around the country, around the United States? Can you, can captives write direct from there or do they need to use a fronting company? What's, what's kind of the arrangements there? Yeah, so we do use a fronting company. It's a tribal, it's, we call it a TIC, a tribal insurance company. Uh, it, it exists on the reservation lands. When a client wants to partake in that, they do sign a limited power of attorney for agents to act on their behalf on the reservation. Uh, that's where the business is being transacted. It's where the you know all business is transacted through their servers on the reservation's land as well. Uh, but we do have a, a tribal insurance company that we under, uh, underwrite risk through. We like that better um, from a standpoint of being able to monitor our clients better, truthfully. <laughs> uh, you know, we so we we seed the risk into the fronting company, and so ultimately, all of our company we call them ARCs here in the, in the U.S. Allied Reinsurance Companies. 
And what an allied reinsurance company is, is all they are is allied with other similar risk profile insurance companies. It's one of the four-part tests we have to apply in order for you to qualify to file your, your insurance company under the 831B. Now, on 831B, again, what the advantage is, is after the PATH Act was passed in the United States and a lot of permanent tax cuts were made permanent during the Obama administration, it raised to 2.3, it rose to $2.3 million. So that's the most you can put into these insurance companies every year and not pay taxes on it at the insurance company level. Um, however, every entity, every, every insurance company that has investments or puts the, you know, puts the surplus and reserves into an investment portfolio or, or whatever you have, whatever it is, they do pay investment income tax. Now, the nice thing about our program, again, is, is it's being paid to the federal government, not to any state government. So there is not a uh, you're not having a federal tax return plus a state tax return. Uh, you as a shareholder, it's a C-Corp. Uh, you declare a dividend down the road or you can simply close it. You sold the business, whatever, and you close the insurance company. You would pay long term capital gains or uh, qualified dividends, depending on what what you're doing for either uh, end of those. Obviously, they're less than ordinary income tax rates currently in the United States. So there is some tax arbitrage here. Um, you know, it, it's a great tax benefit to taxpayers. And I, I pretty kind of hit this off in the beginning. Unfortunately, the tax code has been abused um, by estate tax attorneys in the U.S., but that's not what the code was designed to do. And unfortunately, it was hijacked um, by lots of law firms out there promoting this, not as a risk mitigation tool, unfortunately, but more of an estate tax tool. And that's really where the IRS has, has hammered down on it. And the 831B issue is one we haven't talked about at great length on the podcast over the last year or so. We, we do touch upon it from time to time. And I think our listeners are probably are quite aware of lots of the controversy around the 831B tax election that you, that you touched upon and some of the abuses that have taken place of that, particularly in the last, well, I think for a long time, but been more noted and more high profile in the last three or four years. I mean, Fan, you talked, uh, you mentioned, of course, you work of 831B captives and, and the premium limit for that is uh, $2.3 million a year at the moment. So that's that's kind of the, the top end of the size of captives that you work with, Van. How, how small do these go in terms of annual premium? What, what kind of range are we looking at? You know, we, we kind of have it all over the board. Um, based on our price structuring, we have clients that do $40,000 a year in premiums. Uh, and we have high as $2 million. But it's all based on actuarial determination. We're going to set the contribution limits. No, Again, we're going to mimic ourselves after the 401k programs. We're, there's contribution limits you can, you're can you allowed to make under a 401k plan. No different than there's limits of contributions you can make under the 831B. Just because you can put up the $2.3 million a year into the insurance company doesn't mean you're qualified to do that. And so it's a lot of it's based on gross revenues. Um, and two, how healthy is the insurance company? Do we start to build surpluses? Do we start to... You know, and then we'll also make mandatory distributions, for example. If we feel like the insurance company is getting too heavy relative to the risk it's underwriting, then we're going to require distributions if the owners of the insurance company want to continue to contribute. We will have rules and regulations set forth. Like I said earlier, there's a four-part test you must adhere to in order to qualify to elect under the 831B. And, you know, pooling risk is the big one. You know, our clients will pay a portion of other other people's claims, and they have to get over that. There, you can't own 100% of your own risk under the 831B code and call yourself an insurance company. Or you have to have multiple exposure units in order to qualify to have your own pool. And that's and that gets into some gray area as well, obviously. Uh, but we have a 
we have a pretty good understanding of that as well. Yeah. Well, on that on that topic of kind of what you're referring to there is the risk shifting and, and risk distribution that is needed, of course. And we did do an episode uh, with EY a few weeks back uh, on that exact topic of risk uh, shifting and risk distribution, touching upon some pools and the importance of those and, and those being put together properly. Well, more on that in a moment with Van. But now we're going to hear an interview with my good friend, Frederick Finman, head of group risk management at the Swedish engineering giant Sandvik. Long-time listeners may remember Frederick from episode three of the podcast when he joined to specifically discuss how their captive deals with US workers' compensation. This time, however, Frederick speaks more broadly about the Sandvik captive, the environment for captives in Sweden, and the hardening market. How have you rated the general response of the insurance market to these events? Well, I think as expected, more or less. I mean, if, if we look at the uh, insurance, global insurance programs that we buy at Sandvik, our expectations were, were not very high as we knew that the coverage uh, was limited. We had some, some business interruption coverage on our property policy, uh, but a very limited uh, one. And the insurer has responded as expected in that case. If we look at other other matters, uh, such as the uh, the business travel insurance, uh, most people are now, now not traveling, so we haven't really tested that. Uh, we have had a few questions around expatriates um, located in, in different hotspots, but fortunately, we haven't seen too many uh, health uh, or sick people yet within the, the group. How useful do you think captives can be then in, in this present environment with, with these new challenges? I think that sort of the, this is the situation where uh, captives was, was sort of founded from the beginning, looking at a new type of emerging risk. So I think the, the op- this will be a good opportunity to, to captives to actually move forward. So do you think, do you think captives have a, have a role to play potentially in, in future pandemic coverage for their parents? Because obviously we've seen there doesn't appear to have been much in the way of insurance products out there for, for corporates before this event came about, even, even if they were looking to buy coverage. And I think that's debatable as well. But do you think captives could have a role to play in, in structuring future kind of pandemic coverage for, for their parents? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just looking at what the, now the, some governments are looking into uh, expanding on, on the insurance pools that were originally designed for terrorism coverage into pandemics in order to provide financial coverage to affected uh, businesses, but also to society as a whole. And captives do add capacity, insurance capacity to the market and, and captives are uh, more of a uh, uh, an insurance buying tool and a risk management tool. So I believe that captives and at, at least we are considering to introduce maybe not you know so a complete business interruption coverage for pandemics, but at least some coverage for our various businesses out there because uh, they are, are truly struggling uh, in these very difficult circumstances. So um, moving just to Sweden, particularly uh, Frederick and its history with captives, got quite a, got quite an interesting history of captives and you and I have discussed this many times over the years. Um, regulators in Sweden encouraged Swedish multinationals to move their captives home quite some, some years ago now. And of course, they are regulated in Sweden under Solvency 2. How would you assess the regulatory environment for captives in Sweden today? Well, I think many captive owners in Sweden are struggling uh, with understanding the non-proportional rules uh, and regulations 
uh, and are considering uh, finding alternative domiciles. The regulatory environment is becoming more and more stringent, and uh, it, it is actually hard to find the time to cope with uh, with the workload related related to this. As you you cannot the, the the regulations allow you to outsource some of this these defense lines that you need to work with, but most of it uh, needs to be owned and actively dealt with by the uh, the managing director and the board. So it, it, these are challenging times for for captives. Do you think that um, obviously the hardening market and and of course the, the pandemic we're we're currently experiencing? Do you think they might strengthen the case for captives in the long term, not just at the corporate parents themselves, but also to regulators, lawmakers, as we see kind of problems in the insurance market, do you think the captives might get a bit more attention and a bit more credit for the for the role that they play in our economies? Well, the question is, is without a doubt, yes, for the corporates. Uh, but then in terms of, of uh, authorities and governments, uh, in that sense, I, they do not understand uh, mm. sort of the benefits of a captive and, and at least uh, the discussions we have with the uh, uh, FSA in Sweden that more or less every meeting we need to to reiterate what the captive is and, and uh, the benefits and, and, and that it is used as a insurance buying tool and not selling insurance to third parties. So in that sense, I'm not sure whether they understand the, the benefits, but uh, absolutely there is uh, absolute strengthening case for captives in the long run, uh, considering the, the combination of, of a hardening market and also emerging risks such as the, the pandemic and uh, cyber risks. And this will increase the benefits of, of captives going forward. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Van Carlson, CEO of Strategic Risk Alternatives. Before the break, we heard from Frederick Finman of Swedish multinational Sandvik, and it reminded me to ask you, Van, whether you know of any companies outside of the US, uh, say, for example, in Europe or Latin America, of them forming captives in Indian reservations. I think my immediate assumption would be that most of the US companies know about this and have used it. Would, would it be possible for foreign companies to form a captive on an Indian reservation? And is it something you've considered uh, promoting or exploring further? Yes, we have. In fact, it's mostly coming from the Pacific Rim to the point where um, we've had a lot of interest in, uh, from business owners in South Korea, uh, in Hong Kong, um, and in, of course, uh, Japan. Uh, and, and we've actually had some interest from China as well. The Indian Reservation, the, the tribe we work with, the Modoc tribe, is a very forward-thinking tribe. 
they uh, they they've already passed regulations to accept ownership of of captives on their reservation lands from foreigners. We would consider that. Um, but no, that's absolutely they welcome it. Uh, it's it's revenue for them again, um, and it's a simple. Um, you, you now they own a, um, a an insurance company in the United States, and they concede risk here. Typically, when we do those, we're typically we would call it a controlled pool situation where there's specific things they're looking for, uh, and they have enough exposure units. Uh, they're still subject to the 831B regulations, obviously. However, you know, as long as they're adhering to the four-part test and that we have a that we can identify and and we'll also write unique risks for them. The, the risk complexities are, are far and wide, as we all know, and everybody has their own little nuances. Uh, some are core to everybody's doing business, but there are some unique situations in, in certain countries that they can't buy risk for either under the uh, tangible as uh, you know, the, the traditional insurance companies they, they have available to them. Well, we'll definitely keep keep in contact on that sh- uh, on on that front, uh, Van. I'd be really interested to hear if we ever hear of a, of a foreign company forming a, a captive in on an Indian reservation. So that, that that's one definitely to watch. Now, as, as many of you know, there aren't a great deal of good insurance related podcasts out there, but one that I do make sure I tune into regularly is the "Should I Stay or Should I Go" podcast, presented and produced by Mike Tannenbaum, founder and managing partner at Key Strategies LLC. Mike is a specialist insurance and risk management recruiter based in New Jersey. And he's shared with me some great insights into the current trends in risk management career development and the important role captive experience plays in reaching the top of the profession. My uh, typical clients would be uh, Fortune 500 type companies, companies that have corporate risk management departments typically, uh, large insurance brokers, insurance carriers, and consulting firms. Fantastic. And you, Mike, you sit between, you both will work with risk managers, kind of looking for that new perfect role, but also you'll you'll work with corporations who are looking for the, the perfect candidates as well, Mike. Yes. I mean, a typical day for me is I'm fielding calls from candidates who are interested in opportunities. I'm fielding calls from clients that are looking to hire people. And so, you know, um, I'm very flexible in terms of uh, shifting gears with, with each type of conversation. It's a little bit of a different spin, as you can imagine. But, you know, one of the things I really enjoy about handling both sides is that, you know, I have a perspective of what a hiring manager is really looking for. And I also have a perspective on what a candidate is looking for. And, you know, you would think that if you're the hiring manager right now, you have the upper hand and, you know, basically you can call the shots, but, you know, a good candidate doesn't just um, look at it that way. And so there has to be a bit of nuance added to the process. And, you know, a, a client uh, and a hiring manager, they need to present their opportunity in a particular way, and they need to understand the opportunity both short term and long term. And uh, and I think candidates need to see what that opportunity is both short term and long term. And you know that's that's a a piece of the puzzle that sometimes is lost on on a hiring manager or someone in HR um, who is typically working on many many opportunities and not really thinking about you know what the hook really is they're just thinking about that they have a lot of opportunities and a lot of resumes to go through so it's a it's a different perspective that I try to bring to the table. Well, talking about the the short term and, and long term, Mike. Obviously, the the coronavirus pandemic has obviously created a lot of economic volatility, and we're all expecting a, a sharp downturn across most sectors. From from my position in the UK, I'm I'm certainly seeing 
seen a few large firms kind of fur- having to furlough their risk insurance team and, and actually then outsource uh, some of that to their broker uh, for the time being. Is that is that a trend you think we we, we should be worried about? One, are you, are you seeing that in the US? And do you think we might see uh, large organizations going down that kind of outsource risk management route more in the future? So, you know, um, I'm not actually seeing an awful lot of that here in the States. Um, I, I do think that it is common during times like this for companies to really scrutinize very carefully their expenses across the board. And uh, for companies that are having layoffs and, and furloughs, uh, I'm not seeing the corporate risk management department as affected. You know, uh, in a large company that might have a large team, you might see them potentially lose um, one or two people, depending on the size of the staff and the extent of the impact on the on the business. But um, where I am seeing uh, more of an outsourced opportunity is in let's say mid-sized companies or you know companies that might have a department of one possibly two people i don't know that it's a trend just yet but i've been hearing in the last couple of weeks about some companies that have been thinking about that and you know so whether it's outsourcing to their broker or potentially to a uh, standalone firm uh, that is something that i'm keeping my eye on right now Regarding captives, obviously, Mike, you work with a lot of kind of the Fortune 1000 risk mergers, and, and the majority of those companies will have captives. So how important is that exposure to, to captive experience uh, to a risk professional's development and progress? So I would say it's very important because it comes under the guise of you know overall risk financing strategies. And right now, if, uh, if there's a director job out there or, or a number one job, as we call it, in risk management, uh, just about every job description I see require someone who's very strong in risk financing and captive specifically. You know, there is an accommodation for someone who maybe hasn't dealt with setting up a captive, but if they have to understand how captives work and why they might make sense and what the process is to figure out whether a captive would make sense for the company. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And um, of course, captives are extremely sophisticated vehicles and, and obviously sophisticated risk managers and risk professionals are needed to kind of oversee those and, and use them appropriately. But uh, Mike, it's been a really great pleasure having you on to the the Global Captive podcast, and it, it would, I would have loved to have you on anyway. But uh, <laughs> the truth is, the truth is that you also have a, an excellent podcast which you launched also in 2019. It's called Should I Stay or, or Should I Go? And you've had some really great guests. Some of the I'm quite envious of some of the guests that you've had on, Mike. Some of the, I'd love to get my hands on some of those guys. So, how, how did you get into uh, into podcasting, and, and why did you just decide to launch one uh, last year? So, you know, for uh, for a long time, um, you can imagine in my role, you know, I have you know over the many years I've been in the business of recruiting, I've had thousands of conversations with risk managers at all different levels. And I'm someone who I've always considered myself to be a bit of a student of the business. You know, I've been fascinated by the development of the risk management profession and the skills that people have needed. And I've always been someone who paid attention to, you know, how someone got to be in the position that they're in. So if there was a VP of risk management for a large company, you know, I I was always fascinated by how they got there and what steps they took from the time they got out of school. Because many years ago, there was no degree for risk management. Uh, Only recently in the last few years has that really taken off. So people generally fall into the risk management profession. And so it's just very interesting to me. So I have all these different conversations about people's backgrounds and the skills that they developed and the insights they've gained. And I thought, well, gee, wouldn't it be great to record these? Because I can't imagine that there wouldn't be a lot of interest in the profession overall in hearing about how people got to be where they are and the steps they've taken and the insights they've gained. So uh, in, uh, in the fall of last year, late fall, I decided to launch the podcast and I've been having a lot of fun with it.
Van, as mentioned, you predominantly work with captives uh, making a Federal B tax election. Have you started to see claims arise from the coronavirus pandemic to to the captives under your administration? And, and what kinds of claims are you starting to see? Yes, we have. Uh, I would say by far the most we've had since we've been in existence since 2008. Uh, I think we're up to 38 uh, companies that have filed claims. Uh, most of them are the medical communities under the elective surgery. Um, as you're probably aware, that was one of the things that, I mean, I think it was probably done all over the country, all over the world, that elective surgeries were pretty, you know, surgical centers that had elective surgeries were pretty much shut down. Dental practices were all shut down. Chiropractor firm, I mean, the list goes on and on. So I would say of, of all the ones that the specific industry we've witnessed is medical. Uh, we did have some supply chain risk issues come up in the beginning, especially when companies were dependent on some China Chinese products. However, they were able to rebound fairly quickly on some of that. So that when we look at uh, the claims, most of them are coming from political risk. Some are third-party business interruption risk. We offer contingency business interruption as well, which which is going to be interesting in how some of the things are being defined at the state levels. Contingency business interruption typically covers acts of God, uh, catastrophic events related to weather, for example, earthquakes, floods, and all those. However, it's going to be really interesting for our country to decide whether or not uh, this is considered a man-made or a God, uh, an act of God when it comes to the COVID-19. Uh, you know, we'll let the attorneys figure that out and judges and courts, unfortunately. I think that's where that's, that argument's going to go. But aside, aside of all that, uh, the other one I think is going to really start to show itself is, business, is uh, dispute resolution. Uh, we're already starting to see some of that. And this is mostly, it's unfortunate. It's, it's a, uh, you know, you talk about a, a manufacturer or supplier or distributor, you know, they have to bring products in. And of course, their their retailer says, hey, we, we don't want that. Stop, stop it. And that's happened. They shut down for almost two months. A lot of these retail stores did. However, under their contracts, when they start back up, they all of a sudden said, hey, we're going to see this contract. You have to have this product here in 20 days to us. And if you don't, then you're going to have to discount the prices down everything. Else. So so we're also seeing this kind of this ebb and flow where suppliers and distributors stop taking products in and emptied their warehouses and so forth. And now they got the retailers ramping up. But now the, the distributors and wholesalers aren't getting their products fast enough. And now there's some contractual language now being challenged uh, here in the United States, whether or not, you know, can the retailers really hold these wholesalers and distributors feet to the fire about not getting their product to them quick enough. And so those are things that we see right now that we're getting questions about, you know, how would this work? How are the triggering events and all those types of things for coverage? And so the complexities, again, you know, uh, well, you know, it's this ebb and flow through all of it to where, you know, what you thought was going to be normal situation uh, now turns abnormal when all of a sudden now you're being sued by your retailer because you weren't able to get the jeans to the to the retailer in time and affected them, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, again, it's risk mitigation. It's risk, you know, it's those things you don't think about until, um, you know, until they um, appear in front of you. And then all of a sudden you go, gee, what? I never thought that would happen. I can't tell you how many times we heard that with clients in our program. We never thought they'd ever be shut down, and especially for the time they were shut down. So just so lastly, Van, it's well documented, and you've touched already uh, quite a bit in our discussion on companies' assets becoming increasingly intangible. And a lot of traditional insurance solutions obviously do not match up with this move to intangible assets. How do you see captives and how are you already seeing captives playing a role to fill that gap in regards to insuring intangible assets? 
You know, I think that's the answer. Uh, I don't see traditional insurance companies um, increasing their appetite for risk anytime soon. And, and it does get into that intangible asset problem where, you know, that's the eye of the beholder kind of conversation, right? Um, a tangible asset is easy to market. It's easy to, to appraise. It's easy that you see, you touch it, you feel it. And the intangible is so much harder. You know, when you deal with intellectual properties today or contracts or, or just the brand of your business, uh, I, you know, between, you know, and the greatest, the greatest intangible asset of any business has is the cash flow, you know, and that's, again, again, COVID-19 is a great example of that, right? I think, I believe, no different than the 401k program is a traditional way of doing business in the United States in order to offer a deferred retirement plan for your employees, and it's deductible at the company level, I believe the 831B program is going to become no different. Now, you know, as, as awareness becomes, as pricing comes in more line, as competition increases and all that stuff, I do believe uh, owning some kind of form of your own insurance company is going to become a normal way of owning a business. To drive that home, again, I, I hate keep bringing it up, but you know, I think this is what we're living in through right now is a good example. I mean, look what's happening right now, even with the, the, the rioting that we're having going on in the U.S. right now. Target shuts on 150 stores. You know, OK, that's a big hit to Target, but they're going to survive. What happened to the small bakery down the road? What happened to the dentist down the road? He, his place might not have burnt down to the ground, but he's still being affected by loss of income. He can't he cannot open his business up and operate. You know, what traditional insurance companies are going to trigger coverage for that? And we get into the indirect and the direct losses and so forth. And so, you know, the brand damages today that can happen. It takes you years to build up and takes you a second to destroy because somebody got upset and put something on Facebook about you, uh, about your business. It's just it's the complexities are getting harder and harder to define. And I, again, I just don't see traditional insurance companies running to the rescue and they almost can't, truthfully, in my opinion. So, I, again, I, I think they throw B is a great tax code. It ought to be looked at by every every CPA, every financial advisor, every risk mitigator out there. Every everybody that thinks themselves as a risk manager in the United States ought to be going to their business owners and saying, "Listen, there is an answer to this, and it's owning your some kind of form of your own insurance company." And again, it may. And I tell clients, and I tell when I make presentations, and I mean, it's just a tool in the toolbox, guys. It's all it is for the right for the right client. This is a great tool, and that's all it is. And and so. I think it's going to become more and more predominant in our business world. Uh, it's just a matter of getting the message out and making sure that we have good actors in our industries and self-regulating and, and doing the right things and, and making sure the client's winning in this program, not so much the administrators or, or states that are charging taxes and everything else. The, the client, the business owner, the risk taker is the one who has to win by owning some kind of form of their own insurance company. Well, that's all good stuff. And thank you, Van, uh, for, for that. And that's all we've got time for in this episode. I would like to say thank you to all of our guests, Frederick Finman of Sandvik, Mike Tannenbaum of Key Strategies and the Should I Stay or Should I Go podcast. And of course, Van Carlson of Strategic Risk Alternatives. Van, thank you for coming on to the pod. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Stay safe and stay healthy and see you next time, captives.